Thoth's Hermes podcast. Welcome to the world of the Western esoteric tradition. Friends and listeners, welcome to yet a new episode of the Thoth Hermes podcast. And today it's indeed our season finale of season four. That is episode 24 of this season four. Thank you so much to you all for being with us here today. Today is also a very special day on the calendar because it's midsummer, it's summer solstice, it's the 21st of June 2020, the day that we released this episode. And the episode has also a kind of a mysterious name, it's called The Conquering Twin. Well, for those of you who know a bit of Latin and a bit of Greek, they might get it when they hear the name of our guest today, who is Dr. Thomas Vincente. Yes, the conquering twin. Okay, maybe you'll get the explanation in the interview if you haven't got it already now. Great. Well, as I said, it's the last episode of this season and that's quite a special moment also for me because we have done not only the 24 episodes but also one extra question and answer um, episode in the middle. So 25 times in this season we have been here together and it has been really great to have you as my audience here. We've had great people who were our interview guests. We had several Ex Libris shows in between, three of them actually. And I'm really happy that we did all of that. Now, this is of course not the end of the Thought Farmers podcast. My goodness, no, we'll start season five in two weeks from today. More of that at the end of the show, as always. And today, you know what? Today, because it's the last episode of this season, I'm not going to talk about all of this, how you send me feedback and how you can become a supporter, which doesn't mean you shouldn't, you know, but I'm just telling you, if you need some more information or if you want to get all the previous episodes here and find them and find all the show notes, just go on the website, which is called www.thoshermes.com. That is T-H-O-T-H-E-R-M-E-S dot com. And it's also really interesting when I get your feedback. I like that, as you know, and I've also invited you several times to come here to uh, propose maybe some musicians or some music and more of more of you do that. And so today is again one of those episodes where I'm happy to be able to play music that one of our listeners, one of our regulars here has produced and written and, and performed. So this is always, I find, a very special moment also for this podcast when we can do that. Um, today's music will be again three pieces as always, but the music that has been given to me is, I would call it contemplative, maybe 
a little bit even meditative music and the pieces are rather long and it would be impossible to play three full tracks of that recording that I got for you today on the podcast. So together with Timothy Hawks, who is the composer of the music, we have decided that I will play from some of the tracks of his new CD, his first CD, which was released last year. Um, I will play you three tracks, but only six minutes of each track, which is, I think, gives you a great idea of his music and will make you hungry to get more of that music. And you can, of course, find all the details on the show notes for this show, but I will also give you a little hint where to find it now. So again, this is Timothy Hawks, who has given us this music and he performs under the name of ZDJ, ZDJ. And if you go on bandcamp.com, bandcamp.com and enter ZDJ, the three letters, then you will be directed to his page. You will find this recording that I'm going to play for you today in full. You will also find it on Spotify, by the way. And there you just enter also the album that is called Heliopause. Heliopause has a number of tracks with those meditative, contemplative tracks. And now we are going to play the first for you. Or today, the first track bears as a name a date, August 25, 2012. To be honest, I am not sure what happened on August 25, 2012. But maybe if you ask Timothy Hawks on his Bandcamp site, he might be able to tell you. And uh, well, let's dive in immediately into that music, relax, lean back and Let's enjoy together August 25, 2012 from the album Helia Pose by ZDG. Enjoy.
August 25, 2012. From the album Heliopause by Zed Day G, who is one of our listeners and who has been so kind to propose those tracks to us to give a listen. Thank you for that. All right, we are now going to meet Dr. Thomas Vincente. And Thomas, he is uh, for the first time appearing on a podcast he has so far always not wanted to do that for several reasons which he also will partly explain in the interview i'm not giving that away now um but no as just as much that thomas vincente is a pen name and he'll also explain this why he chose that name and why he chose the pen name altogether i am trying out something with you today i will read you an excerpt from the book uh, the book by thomas vincente the faceless god that we have chosen together he and i to present a little bit the content of that book a short excerpt of three or four minutes just only just before we start the interview and if you like that idea if you think it's a good idea to give you some hints on what somebody that i'm going to interview has to say before we actually start the interview then I'm going to do that uh, in the future. I thought it would be nice to start season five with that new idea. And so I give it a try today in the last episode of season four. And I'm expecting your feedback. So go on the website or send me an email or whatever. Send me a feedback if you like the idea that I always should read you a short excerpt from a book by the author who I will present you in that episode or from a text by him if he's not an author. Okay? Right, so let me now, therefore, read to you an excerpt from the chapter called Anubis as Guardian of the Gateway by Thomas Vincente from his book The Faceless God. Anubis was the preeminent god of death in pre-dynastic Egypt, long before Osiris rose to prominence in the cult center of Abydos. The perception of Canids as guardians of the spirit world is well attested cross-culturally. In prehistoric consciousness, the dog inhabits a liminal space between the domestic and the wild. It's a creature both familiar and threatening, since it reminds us of the precariousness of civilized life and the dangers of slipping back into barbarism. The scavenging behavior of certain canids reinforced these anxieties. The jackal, who lurked in the twilight shadows of the western necropolis, was feared as the desecrator and devourer of the dead. But it was also revered as a psychopomp, much as carrion birds are regarded as conduits to the spirit world in the sky burials of ancient Persia, Tibet, and certain Native American tribes. By consuming and digesting the corpse, the jackal transformed the deceased person, breaking down the body and releasing the soul. The rites of mummification were devised by the priest of, of Anubis, to harness the alchemical mystery of the jackal god, the power to generate life from dead and decaying matter. The desecrator of the dead thus became the lord of the necropolis. As patron of the funerary cult, Anubis was called 
he who is in the place of embalming. His fetish was a headless mummified pelt of a bovine or wild cat affixed to an upright pole. This symbol encapsulated the profound mystery of the death and resurrection of Osiris, the headless one, which was guarded by the Anubis cult. Okay, and now we are going to meet Thomas Vincente, who is the author of those lines that I just read in person. We are going to meet him in Canada. And um, there we are going to talk to him about his book, but much more about also his path, his ideas, and lots of things that he had to say. Right. We'll come back after 30 minutes in the middle of the interview for some more music by Zendeji. But for now, let's go and speak to Dr. Tomas Vincente. Here comes the interview. For this last episode of season four here today on the Thought Hermit podcast, I have a very special guest here in front of the microphone and uh, we are speaking today to Tomas Vincente. Uh, good evening, good afternoon to you, uh, Tomas. Uh, very nice to have you with us here. Uh, good evening, Rudolf. It's a, it's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Thank you. Um, in fact, uh, I may say that uh, it's the first time that you appear on a podcast after the release of your great book, The Faceless God, which I think uh, uh, is a very, not only a very fine book to touch and to hold in hands, as always the Theon publishing books are, but also by its content is a very, very special book. And we are going to talk about that a lot today. Um, but uh, we are, of course, as always on this podcast, also going to talk about the person, Thomas Vincent. And um, while we're saying that, um, uh, I may say, and, and, and some people might know, but uh, this is a pen name. It's not your real name. And there, as sometimes in the occult world, there are good reasons linked to that. It's not just being, a, uh, being special, but yeah, also yeah. because right. a That's pen right. name sometimes allows to be a bit, um, to go a bit further with certain things than you would normally be able to do in your regular life. Right. Yeah. And, so maybe we should start a bit about you, uh, you as Tomas Vincente and uh, how, how you got that name, how you, how you put it together, because I think the story behind the name is also interesting. Mm -hmm. And also why and what's the personality that's behind that name and how did you become that Tomas Vincente, Tomas Vincente that you are today and what, what brought you there? Right. Well, I'll just make a, a quick note about uh, the the meaning of the pseudonym. Yes. Uh, and I don't think I've ever spoken about this before. Um, okay. But uh, so Tomas, uh, if we trace it back to its ancient root, means twin. Yes. And Vincente in Latin is something like conquering. Mm -hmm. So the idea, the name means something like the conquering twin. And it's a, it's a nod to this figure of the faceless God, mm -hmm. um, who, as I argue in the book, is sort of like the dark reflex or twin of Christ. Right. Um, and at the same time, the name is sort of referencing my own twin. 
my own dark reflex, if you will, right. my, uh, my alter ego. Um, so it's doing both of those things. Yeah. Is it also because the first, the first, um, reaction that comes to me when I hear it for a, you say pseudonym and not pen name, what do you prefer? Is it for you? Is it more than a pen name? Probably because with that explanation, one might think it, it's more than just a pen. It's, more, it's certainly more than a rhetorical conceit. Right. Yeah. You yes. know, there's uh, some mm. substance to, to it. Yeah. Um, I've been able to give voice to, uh, aspects of my own personal practice, uh, that, um, I, I do not speak to in my mundane, uh, life. Uh, and mm -hmm. I can, and so in my mundane life, uh, that doesn't make it sound very, very pleasant. Does it in my, in my <laughs> ordinary life? I am, a, I'm, I'm an academic, I'm a scholar and a teacher. Right. Um, so I publish under my own name, sure. works uh, of academic, mm -hmm. uh, research. Um, so the pseudonym has also been useful simply to allow for a kind of demarcation there between my scholarly work and teaching, uh, and this, uh, more personal, uh, visionary work, yes. um, which certainly, yeah. um, uh, is grounded in academic research. Certainly, uh, yeah, sure. You're but, the, but launches far beyond that at the same time. You're the same person still, of course. Yeah. But yeah. I, I find that interpretation, the winning twin, the conquering twin, better uh, interesting also in that aspect when you have your mundane. Let's say mundane, why not? I mean, yeah. it's, 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 yeah. it's what we mostly use in that respect. That's true. Mundane life and your, and your maybe not hidden life, but your other life, your private life. And if the if the private life is now conquering, maybe that's also a sign, isn't it? Yes. And you know, the book came at the end of a very long journey, you know, mm -hmm. you know, it began studying esotericism from really from a strictly academic point of view at first, uh, near the end of my graduate studies. Um, so it began by, by a very intensive study of ancient sources of esotericism. Right. And then, you know, hermetic texts um, mm -hmm. and related currents of alchemy and astrology and then move beyond that to, you know, so the main trajectories of Western esotericism uh, and only gradually did my own sort of initiatory practice and aspirations develop. Mm -hmm. We will go into more detail with that um, in a minute. Um, may I ask a typically European question? You uh, in, in other parts of the world not always have that question, but what age are you? <laughs> uh, what age am I now? I am I am quickly approaching the half century mark <laughs> okay okay good 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 answer okay no because i just i don't find it's important but it's important in a way of how long your path has been going yeah it's been it's been long yeah yeah and as we are now maybe talk a little bit about how it all started for you before we come to the book itself um how you how you got into uh your secret life, so to speak, mm -hmm. how occultism, esotericism, how the, all that you just mentioned became a, a fact in your life. Right. Well, I have always, uh, well, at least since my, the beginning of my, um, my university studies have always been on a quest <laughs> for truth. 
Um, and initially, I began through the study of uh, philosophy, um, focusing on ancient philosophy uh, specifically. And near the end of my, my graduate studies, I, when I realized I hadn't quite got the truth yet, <laughs> <laughs> I began to kind of uh, long for a more uh, immersive approach to spiritual knowledge, uh, right. getting beyond kind of textbook approaches, getting beyond theoretical approaches um, to um, a kind of Gnostic uh, approach. Though I, at that point, I didn't have any idea what Gnosticism was, but I just had this sort of yearning for more. And that's what led me to, um, I had heard the name Hermes Trismegistus, um, and uh, I really had no idea what that was all about. So mm -hmm. started researching uh, late antique sources of magic and alchemy, initiatory literature. So the Neoplatonic current that, uh, that style. Yeah, or even uh, lesser known currents sort of related mm -hmm. to Neoplatonism, like the Hermetic right. literature and, and Gnostic literature. And... Um, Yeah, that, that gave me the kind of basic framework, beginning with the ancient sources. And then I filled that picture out with the study of Renaissance figures like Agrippa, you know, the main lines of Western esoteric thought. Yeah, Mirandola uh, and, and yes. Fidelis, yeah. Mm -hmm. And then the introduction of Kabbalistic influences and how they fused with the Medi ancient Mediterranean systems. So I had, but by the end of that journey, a pretty good working knowledge of those currents as they came from the ancient world. Um, and gradually alongside of that, I began <laughs> practice, um, mm. you know, in a very, um, it's been a very long winding path. I've explored many different approaches and mm. as did, many of us have. Don't yeah. Yeah. Mm. Many initiatic environments. Mm. And then really the, it, the consolidation of the, the journey um, happened through the inception and the writing of the faceless God. Mm -hmm. And especially through my interactions with David Beth, who edited um, and wrote the introduction to that book. Right. Uh, yeah. Mm -hmm. um, I have to ask you a couple of questions about what you just said. Um, difficult questions, though. <laughs> you sure. said you were on a you went on a quest for truth, right? Um, and what? How would you define truth? Well, I would define it much differently now than I would uh, mm -hmm. have defined it as a 18 year old. Yeah. Uh, who was first exposed to a philosophy. So as a, in my, in my young and naive days, I thought of truth as a content, as, mm -hmm. as a destination, you know, um, something that could be comprehended in more or less rational terms. Mm -hmm. Um, <clears throat> I, nowadays I, I tend to think of truth as a, as a process, or an okay. unfolding, uh, an ever deepening journey into mystery. So it's not an absolute thing, but it is something that develops, so to speak. Yeah, and it's certainly something that that is vastly beyond the reach of rational 
comprehension, right. even though rational methodologies are, at least in my practice, indispensable mm-hmm. moments mm-hmm. in the journey. Is truth personal or is it um, maybe not global, but is it general? Is truth is truth? Is truth general or personal? Yeah. Um, there are universal aspects mm. to it, but uh, the richness of it and, and the, the, is in is in the immediate encounter mm. with numinous forces, right. which is local, particular, um, and that for me. In this, you know, and this is one of the areas where um, the cosmic Gnostic system of, mm-hmm. of David Beth has been important for me. Um, for me, the sacred is the immediate now. It is the right. immediate moment. So it's not something yeah. transcendent. That's right. It's something that is here and now. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Uh, which is very much also what David, of course, says and said here on this podcast as well. Yes. But sure. the book is also when I when I say that, it's easy to, I think, misconstrue that as well. Mm-hmm. Um, when we talk uh, about the sacredness of this world. Right the cosmos mm. um, and, and, and the particulars. It's not for me uh, a matter of venerating nature in its immediacy um, so much as tapping into the underlying numinous forces mm-hmm. uh, that give rise to nature in its phenomenal form. Yeah, and there are numerous types of that force, and we'll probably yeah. get into that. Yeah, bit. right. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, but that fits quite nicely to my second question that arose when you first said something about Gnosticism, because also Gnosticism is a word that has been used, especially in the last 50 years, so to speak, in many different Yes. Meanings. And um, there is a part of Gnosticism that's not exactly the contrary of what you're saying uh, with the classical, um, the classical medieval Gnosticism, which is negating the material world because only the transcendent world is important that here you're doing exactly the opposite. So what what is Gnosticism in your definition? How would you define Gnosticism for yourself? Yeah. So for me, I mean, there are complex um, debates about the term Gnosticism, how useful sure. it may or may not be. Sure. Uh, that, but that's we, why I'm, not, I'm yeah, not looking for yeah. the truth here. I'm, I'm, I'm just yeah. to define for how do I define? How do you employ yeah. it? Exactly. Yeah. So no, if we begin with the idea of Gnosis, mm-hmm. um, which is obviously the common link in all the different varieties of Gnosticism, we're talking about some kind of supra-rational apprehension Mm-hmm. of the numinous right um which go it goes beyond theory it goes beyond um ordinary rational concept uh, the question is how do we trigger that gnosis and um and what is the relation of the gnostic perspective on reality to the ordinary phenomenal picture mm-hmm. of reality mm-hmm. um some Gnostics following a kind of platonic understanding of, of um, 
the soul and the transcendental origins of the soul, mm-hmm. they, they kind of uh, radicalize that, that platonic vision and, and, and begin to see this world, this cosmos as a fallen world. Right. A broken world, a kind of distorted image of the true world of the forms. Right. That that's like the Qatars and, and those strong Gnostic movements in the medievals and Yeah, there's some kind of <laughs> it would be difficult to reconstruct the the way that ancient Gnosticism goes forward. But yeah, it's echoed there in, in Manichaean yeah. thought and Manichaean, uh, yes, sure. Um That so that we might call that anti-cosmic Gnosticism. Yeah, um, and the problem with, with with that form of Gnosticism, as I see it, is that it mistakes visionary experience for the experience of another world. You know, all, all forms of esotericism are grow out of visionary experiences, which are then conceptualized in different right. ways. How, which we try to make sense of them. The way the Gnostics, the anti-cosmic Gnostics tried to make sense of it was they imagined that Gnosis happened when you disengaged from your bodily life mm-hmm. and your soul began its return to its supernal source. And along with that notion of Gnosis as a quest for otherworldly transcendence, there's a whole bunch of baggage um, that is very problematic, uh, both you know, with respect to the way that nature is conceived mm-hmm. as broken, uh, as profane, the way that our instincts are understood in particular, our sexual instincts. Mm-hmm. Uh, they, they are demonized within that transcendental perspective. Because they are purely materialistic, seen as purely materialistic. In That's that right. School. right. And we might, um, I think, I should also mention there is a kind of misogyny that uh, is woven into this, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and that's a very complex matter, but for many ancient cultures, at least in some representatives of those cultures, mm-hmm. woman is associated with the biological, right? There's a, a net, a, a network of stereotypes linking right. women to uh, the biological sphere of life. Yeah. So along with that devaluation of nature uh, and sexuality, there is a devaluation of woman. Yes, true. Mm-hmm. Um, so I find these transcendental maps which really have dominated western esotericism to be problematic and mm-hmm. um and uh, and and the, the criticism is not trivial you know there, no. there are those yeah. who would respond and say well wait a minute um there are different maps we can use to make sense of our spiritual experiences mm. and as long as that map works for us as long as it's useful who are you to criticize it Right, And what I would say to that is you, we can't pretend that esotericism is a world unto itself. It's part of the wider culture mm-hmm. and we have responsibilities <laughs> in the maps that we choose yeah. to think through the assumptions underlying them. Definitely. Oh, here we are in a, 
in a wide field where one could discuss at length this matter and maybe we should do that partly because because of course also that waves into the whole problematic field of of politics in esotericism etc etc and and right. That's a large field, which I think could fill three episodes of right. this, yeah, of right, this right. podcast. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, okay. Thank you. But th thank you for saying that. And I think it's very important what you just said. Um, you were talking about certain initiatic environments, as you called them, that you went through as a youngster or when you started. But you... Visibly, you were not one of those who some many of of those people I interview here had their first uh, experience or their first whatever at age five, you know, being in their mother's kitchen. I'm not I'm not making a joke of that. It, it really happens with many of them. Right. Right. Um, uh, it doesn't seem to me that you had that kind of experience at a very early age or did you at some point? No, I didn't. You know, I um, I had a, a, a kind of youthful fascination with the paranormal mm -hmm. um and, and, it, and there's a way in which when i began to study esotericism i kind of picked up again on that on that totally unanalyzed sort of uh fascination mm -hmm. with the paranormal right but no beyond that um no i i can't remember any Uh, unusual, extraordinary experiences right. as a and, person. And those initiatic environments you were mentioning, were they all in the Gnostic spirit or were they also whatever, um, ceremonial magic? Was it a whole field that you tried to grasp or what happened there? Well, um, initially, uh, as many do, I... I um, studied the golden dawn materials right yes yeah, um, as i say many of us do yeah yeah because that that aligned with my study of renaissance uh, esotericism i mean sure. the golden dawn really is an outgrowth of mm -hmm. that tradition um mm -hmm. so that made sense and I, i made a pretty thorough study but again more academic than anything of of uh, the grades of the golden dawn and, and the underlying structures um, and I did work that system a little bit. Um, and, you know, I, I still have a lot of respect for, um, mm. for the, the founders of, and the thought, the thought that went into, and the spiritual vision that went into that system. Gradually though, I turned to, um, I turned to more left-hand path, right. uh, orientations. And now I have, this could be its own podcast as well. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> um, so I use that expression in the book. Mm -hmm. um, I use it in a very particular way. Yeah. Um, and I, I do, I do think of my own current orientation as in a certain way, left-hand path, but as not, it does not have very much in common with the way that, um, terminology tends to be used currently yes, yes. Yeah. and maybe maybe you should also as we just did with narcissism and truth maybe you just should give us also a definition your definition of left hand path in the way you use it in the book and in your life probably yeah so maybe i don't know if this is provocative or not but for me all initiation <laughs> yeah. all initiation is left-hand path 
Okay. Why? No matter how one might try to conceptualize the experience, Mm -hmm. you could use right-hand path systems, traditional systems to frame it. It's funny, you never hear the expression right-hand path or hardly ever, right? Well, this is, there's, there's something to that too. But so for me, um, all initiation, if it's not just a kind of a kind of theatrics or a kind of pretense mm-hmm. or a, a mere accumulation of knowledge. Right. If it is truly a, 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 a transformation mm-hmm. of the mundane personality, um, that is traumatic. Yeah. Like initiation, I mean, this becomes clear to those of us on these paths as we get older <laughs> and actually go through things that there's trauma involved. This is a painful process. You know, it's not, we we might begin with this romantic vision of uh, enlightenment or joining the Illuminati or whatever. But in reality, this is an arduous and painful process in which we have to come to terms with aspects of the self that are unruly and difficult. Mm-hmm. Let's just begin by describing them in that way. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, aspects of the self that might be regarded as irrational, that might be even regarded as beyond ordinary ethical boundaries. Right. Um, and uh, so the left hand path is partly about assimilating or getting in touch with those neglected aspects mm-hmm. of of the person, which transcendental systems sublimate or try to escape from, right? right. Or demonize. Right. Right. So, so I, so in that sense, if we think about initiation, not as ascending into some transcendental world of values, but as descending mm-hmm. into and, you know, it's tempting to use sort of psychoanalytic images here. And I do have a certain fondness for Jung. Um, mm-hmm. But there is a kind of descent into the unconscious elements right. of the person. And so I would not want to overly psychologize the experience because I do not think it's simply a psychological experience. But mm-hmm. that language can be useful. So the left-hand path, in a way, involves descent into that forbidden terrain um, and, and in that process, there is an antinomian aspect, a countercultural aspect. And uh, in as much as we have to break free from certain forms of conditioning, um, so the forces that have kind of shaped the mundane person have to be challenged in all kinds of ways. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I struggle to see how initiation, if it's real, Mm-hmm. is not left-hand path in that sense, at least. Right. right. It's yeah. the fact that in many, many initiatic practices, the fake dead, let's put it that way too, bluntly, right? The, the process of dying and being resuscitated in yeah. some spiritual way is part of, of that that situation um, is that for you an indication that it is left hand path in the way you you just defined 
Yeah, I mean, if we take that that imagery seriously, I mean, even as it appears in in, in traditions of masonry, masonry for example, example, yeah, yeah. Um, if we t- if that's more than theatrics, mm-hmm. if it really is speaking to some kind of radical reconfiguration of the person, which it should be, yeah, then there is necessarily an antinomian aspect to that. Mm. Mm-hmm. Um, that the antinomian aspect is not the end point. Yes, it is. No. It is a, the journey, right? Well, it's called yeah. initiation, right? Yeah. Initiate something and not not endpoint. That is yeah. end. right, right. And so this is the thing I would say um, in distinction to the way the left hand path is normally presented. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have, for example, there's a kind of dominant way of thinking about it that, especially in North American currents. Um, but not exclusively, but I see it there particularly to think of um, the left hand path still in a kind of transcendental way where what we're doing is breaking free of the forces that bind us in our kind of natural existence and also in our kind of social social existence as mm-hmm. conditioned beings. Mm-hmm. And what we're trying to do is kind of immortalize the psyche or right. that that part of us that is uh, that is not simply tied to the natural. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's interesting how those left hand path currents continue to build on that transcendental model, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, which has been there all along from mm-hmm. antiquity onwards. Mm-hmm. And in, a, in an interesting way, they actually radicalize that transcendental model, um, push it towards what looks to me like a kind of dualism. Okay. Um, and, and, where, and where the end point of that is, and I don't quite know what this even means, but that we are going to become gods unto ourselves mm. and we are going to become creators of our own universe. Mm. Um, and that seems to me to be, you know, um, that suggests to me that this has become a kind of escapist fantasy. Yeah. Um, because there is no world from, in my view, other than this universe mm-hmm. that we inhabit. Mm-hmm. And um, so for me, the left-hand path is not about escapist transcendence. It's not about uh, kind of taking some kind of um, transcendental element within us and, and trying to immortalize that. Yeah. Um, it is instead quite the opposite. It is about it is about coming into communion mm-hmm. with the the underlying forces, right? The numinous energies of this cosmos, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and um, and rejecting the kind of um, profane perspective mm-hmm. of, of, mm-hmm. of 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 the cosmos. Right. Very interesting. Um, I think that makes it very clear also the distinction of your definition of your landscape, as you call it, of the left-hand path. Um, Thank you for that, because uh, that's important for all that follows. Okay, friends and listeners, let's take the announced break now and digest the many things that Dr. Thomas Tuincente had to say to us. And let's listen to some more music and 
this contemplative music that we are going to hear again by said Deji and his album Heliopause, which he has given me to present to you today, um, is, I think, the right ambience that we need to think about more about what we have just heard and also meditate about it. Right, the second track of Heliopause that we hear now is called Aether Cry, Aether Cry, something that is not unknown to us. And um, yes, well, I'll leave you immediately with that wonderful ambient music that we are going to hear now.
Okay, Aether Cry from the CD Heliopause by ZDG, who has offered us his music for this show and goes by the real name of Timothy Hawks from Richmond, Virginia. Let's now go back to meet Dr. Thomas Vincente and talk more and especially more about his book, The Faceless God, which has been published by Theon Publishing a couple of years ago. Um, of course, one of those really beautiful books like Theon Publishing does them often and regularly and uh, you should really have a look on their website as well if you have time. Okay. Um, after the interview, immediately after the interview, we'll have a third track from Heliopause. And the third track is called Bird Painted with Bluestone. And I don't know if you can hear that crow, which is going crazy out there in front of my window while I record. Well, maybe he's heard the Bird Painted with Bluestone announcement. And that's why he wants to make himself known to you guys. Right. Okay. But now let's return to talk to Thomas Vincente. Now we go a little bit further into in how you got to the faceless God, because you previously you said, okay, and then I wrote the book and then I met David Bess. But I think this process was a bit well, I don't know, but you have to explain to us the, how the process happened. Did you already work into what maybe you did not yet call cosmic gnosis at the point because you didn't know the current or maybe you did and you started writing the book and then you met David or uh, how did that all come together? How how did the idea of the book emerge and what came first and how did you discover cosmic gnosis in the first place? Yeah, that's an interesting set of questions. So many of the elements that were woven into the book mm -hmm. were already kind of part of my uh, my own research right. bef before I'd ever met David. Even or, practice or, or, or only research? Um, more, still more theoretical, I think, mm -hmm. in, in, mm -hmm. the, in, the, in the beginning. So what are some of these threads? So I'm thinking about, you know, so we've talked about the role of the academic, right? The importance right. of kind of grounding for me, at least of, of grounding my practice in some kind mm -hmm. of, uh, some kind of research. Yeah. Because we, there's always the danger in, in, in occultism, uh, or esotericism that we can become, uh, kind of ungrounded and, and we can, you know, it's easy to fall into delusion. Yeah. Um, and that's one of the dangers too with a culture, the idea of mm -hmm. a culture, though there are many, many positives, mm -hmm. such as your wonderful show, mm -hmm. you know, that, that we have this kind of um, environment, yeah. a collective environment. One of the dangers though, is that it becomes a, can become a kind of echo chamber. Yeah, sure. Uh, so for me, scholarship has given me that grounding, but mm -hmm. at the same time, Gnosis is about, as we've said, is, a, is certainly about moving beyond the rational. Mm. And so some of the things that became um, influential for me were, well, the works of Kenneth Grant were right. very important. And that's a, that's a thread that's woven into the book. Sure. And also important and another important thread in the book uh, was the weird fiction of Lovecraft. Yeah. Which, uh, which Grant also writes about. Um, um, 
Because for me, the, the, the esotericism is not radically distinct from other forms of visionary experience. It's not a uh, parallel universe, as you just said, right? It's, it's yeah, here yeah. in this world. Yeah, that's right. Um, so why not look for inspiration in art mm. or weird fiction? And so, um, the, of course, the powerful aspect of Lovecraft's fiction, and this is something that Grant exploits sort of as a technique, is the blurring of the boundaries between fiction and nonfiction, mm. um, which for me is a central part of the Gnostic uh, experience. So all of those threads were in motion, the, the Lovecraftian stuff, my interest in Grant, and also my academic studies of Egyptology mm -hmm. and um, my interest in European witch lore. Right. Um, now, but the idea in, in the beginning uh, was very... Um, uh, you can see there are many elements at play there. Yeah. And I, and I, and, I sense... And elements that sometimes are seen as being very yeah. not compatible, but they are in the end. Yeah. 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 Understandably. Um, yeah. Um, so I had just a vague sense of what this project was going to be. Um, I had, David and I had some communications. Uh, mm. We were acquainted. Um, and we had talked about... He, he had approached me about writing a book for Theon. Uh, just, and we just kind of explored various possibilities. And then I just began to kind of, to, to frame a sort of outline, drawing together some of those threads. Um, and at the same time, as I began writing, I was kind of exploring David's system a little more seriously, you right. know? Um, read, read, I read his, uh, some of his work, and, and began thinking about the, his idea of cosmic gnosis. Mm. Um, and in the course of writing the book, it became clear to me that this project was closely aligned with David's vision okay. of things. But I didn't know that in the beginning. And in fact, in the process of editing the book, there were various moments when through his feedback... I, I began to see that I was still incorporating transcendental models that I had acquired mm. through my kind of education. Previous work, yeah. Mm. And he kind of helped me work through that. Mm. Um, so there was a kind of initiatory process that happened between David and myself in the, in the writing and editing of that book. Okay. Uh, so it was a really kind of a dynamic experience and an, an initiatory experience uh, in and of itself. The book was released, if I'm not wrong, about four years ago, right? 2016, it says. Yes, that's so right. yeah. must yeah. be that. Um, can you roughly say how long you worked on it? I mean, not, don't tell me 30 years, yes, of course. But uh, I mean, really physically from the decision to write that kind of book to to the final project, a uh, final product, how long did that take? Uh, maybe a year. Okay, that's, that's rather short, isn't it? With it all was, that you said involved. In fact, it was, um, and this is one of the weird things about the book, um, because I've written a lot as an academic. Sure. So I'm very familiar with what that kind of, the rhythm of that kind of writing. Mm -hmm. This was an entirely different experience. Mm. And um, I talk about that a little bit in the preface to the book, when I talk about the idea of inspired texts. Exactly. Mm -hmm. And what, what, that, what we mean by an inspired text. 
Um, the way that that book came together was very strange. Um, mm -hmm. The pieces of the puzzle fell into place in a way that I'd never experienced before with any other form of writing or research. Mm -hmm. um, and I, you know, it was, as I wrote the thing, it was, I was kind of entranced, you know, I was totally absorbed in this process. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, so the bulk of the thing was written very quickly, in fact. Right. You know, very quickly. Some of the final chapters happened a few months on, but mm -hmm. uh, yeah, it, it came together. Yeah, it came together quite quickly. And did you see uh, during that phase of inspirational writing, let's call it that way, uh, it's maybe a bit exaggerated, but um, did you feel in that period also a strong personal development that happened in parallel? Um, not in the writing mm. of the book, because in the writing of the book, I was simply sort of transported right. into that into that visionary space. Mm -hmm. In the aftermath of the writing of the book, um, I found that I had to completely <laughs> reassess my life. Okay. Just to put it right. bluntly. Do you want to say a bit uh, more about that? Well, um, let's just say that my life now is, is vastly different mm -hmm. than it was before mm -hmm. the writing of the book. Mm -hmm. Um, so I've gone through some, some significant changes. Um, and you know, not to be, uh, obviously we all go through changes right in life, but there is to my mind, some connection there, a kind of right. catalytic connection. You know, when you experience a true initiate initiatic, um, revelation that, that changes That reassembles the pieces. Of course. I, I was going uh, to say, but the, the, the writing process seems to be like the initiation for you. The writing process was a kind of initiation. Um, but at the end of it, there was work to be done. Okay. You see what I mean? Like, it's yeah, not like sure. everything was. Sure. Well, it's initiation. <laughs> the path begins. That's right. Okay. That's right. Right. Yeah. Right. I would like to open a little bracket for a moment um, about this academic work um, because and about the conflict that academic work and occult work or you give it the name you give it the name you want occult esoteric left hand whatever you want to call sure. it yeah. um, uh, would would bear in itself it seems to me that at the same time I see maybe it's also personal development i don't know um i see and feel also with this podcast more and more people who are from the academic world that approach me and want to talk about it and at the others on the other side you see even in the academic world that works distinctively with the esoteric history or whatever you would then like to call it mm -hmm. uh, you see that um, there is a kind of like, I would name it a fear to get in touch with each other. Uh, so it is very difficult for an academic in whatever field he is working to say that he is also working more than being interested, working in some projects involving the occult, esoteric, etc. Um, do you experience that personally as well? And why do you think is that? And is it just negative? Is it 
a little bit positive as well. well how do you see that situation? Right. Well, um, it's certainly, that's certainly something that I have uh, struggled with a little bit, mm. trying to figure out how those two parts fit together. Fit together, yeah. Um, I think that if you work as a scholar in esotericism, it's even harder, right? If, you're, if your <laughs> academic discipline had nothing to do with it, it would, I think, right. it would be easier, right? Right. Uh, because after all, as scholars, we strive for objectivity of a certain kind. Now, that's a sure. kind of ideal. Mm. Now, there's no such thing as pure objectivity. But in order to be good scholars, um, uh, we need to um, set aside, as far as we can, our uh, you know personal belief mm -hmm. and subjective experience. You can't completely do it, but you know that's yeah. the way that academic work uh, should unfold methodologically. Mm -hmm. um, so it's important to keep. Uh, to my mind, a certain distinction there. Yes. Um, and uh, both in terms of publishing and teaching, uh, the way that these things have to be presented in an ac academic context is different than the way that Tomas Vincente can speak about them. Mm -hmm. um, and, and again, it's not simply a negative relation because that academic um, methodology if it is kind of protected mm. and allowed to do its own thing, mm. um, that then serves as a foundation mm. for, in, in my case, for esoteric practice. Right. right. If, if those two sides were confused mm -hmm. and I could no longer distinguish between academic objectivity and my subjective Gnostic experience, mm -hmm. then that would all fall apart. Yes. Um, yes. Yeah. And and both sides would then lose something, right? They both would lose their integrity. Mm -hmm. That's right. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. But it is, um, you know, my identity is not an absolute secret. I think that, you know there there um, there are those that know. I, it's just that I don't um, shout it from the rooftops. No, sure. And I prefer to keep that yeah. disciplinary experiential yeah. boundary. Yeah, absolutely. No, understandably. Would you wish for a world where that, where those two twins could be united, or would you? Would do you think it's for you personally, or in general, quite a good situation to have it? Uh, as you just said, to have those two worlds that feed each other. Well, it certainly would be. Uh, sometimes I think, well, wouldn't it be nice if? Uh, esotericism was not stigmatized in the way that mm. it is, right? Obviously, we're dealing with contested forms of knowledge. Um, so, yeah, obviously, uh, that would be nice in a way. But then at the same time, as I said, initiation has this inherently countercultural mm. aspect to it. So how can we ever expect that what we're doing is going to become part of kind of normative culture? And if it did it would have to, we would have to water down <laughs> the nature of yeah, these initiations, right? Absolutely, absolutely. And um, maybe related to this, um, to my mind, the sacred, the initiatic should be kept apart from the yeah. mundane in any case. And, th and this is the confusion of those realms is something that um, is quite common nowadays. Mm. Um, this is another 
thing that I see, you know, I'm not really plugged into the occult world very much. I don't read right. much modern yeah. occult literature. Okay. Um, I have maybe one foot in a culture, mm-hmm. uh, but mostly I'm, I read other, you know, I read um, academic work or mm-hmm. uh, more traditional uh, writings on esotericism. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But one thing I see in that world, and maybe this is why I keep, some dis some distance from it is that there's a kind of tendency sometimes uh this is generalizing but to kind of confuse um the sacred space and the everyday so when people adopt magical personae mm-hmm. and that persona be- that sacred persona becomes their ordinary identity on the one hand, you could say, well, that person is fully living their initiatic, like they're, they are authentic, mm-hmm, but mm-hmm. really, right. I would say, I would see it in the opposite way that, right. Um, all best in good intentions taken into account, there has to be a distance. Absolutely. It's esoteric in it's the esoteric. world. Uh, yeah. Right, 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 so. right. But you much more elegantly than I would have asked the question, answered that question already. I would have said, okay, if we lose that separation, maybe we lose part of, of the power that's in it. And, and, uh, uh, but I think you mean exactly that, don't you? Yeah. And as difficult as it is to negotiate these different aspects of our, of our lives. And it's not, I mean, anyone can relate to this. We all have different aspects of our personalities. Um, maybe the initiatory example is just an extreme example of that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, and this is another way in which I would take issue with a sort of transcendental models of the self or the soul. There is not one person mm. for me. Mm-hmm. Right? We are bundles of elements that change and metamorph. You know, we we flu- in flux throughout our lives, constantly evolving. Mm-hmm. So there's no way to ev- to really ever get get away from this issue of how we reconcile the different parts of our selves. Selves, yeah. Mm-hmm. And 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 I'm not any longer aiming for some kind of radical wholeness of the mm-hmm. self. Mm-hmm. I do think there's something in us that is immortal, mm-hmm. uh, that is inherently connected to the numinous, mm-hmm. the underlying principles. Mm-hmm. Um, but that that element is both us and radically not us. Right. And um, so we're always going to be grappling with how our mundane, the elements of our mundane lives connect to that luminous right. core, which I give the name Tomas Vincente, right? That's the, yeah. the voice of uh-huh. that. Uh-huh. Of that Nicely put. Yeah. 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 Do you know that theory by C.G. Jung, which is funny enough, not known or not so commonly known, um, where he says that, um, referring to kinds of ceremonial magic where we have, where we have rituals where, with several officers and roles, mostly seven, right? And that this is a kind of split of the self of the initiate or of the candidate uh, to be initiated into those seven 
parts and he reflects his own self his or her own self in this in these seven parts have you heard that theory and I, so do you i've, do you, I've, do you, I've read some young um in particular um, in relation to uh, gnosticism and alchemy but no i don't recall that do you remember right. what uh, which text that, i, I that, would have to look it up i i, I took a note at the time but i don't know by heart that's now. interesting yeah mm -hmm. that's interesting i think it's an interesting approach of it yeah but now it's finally go to your more deeply into the book The Faceless God, even though of course we touched many facets of that book right. al already okay. a little bit. When we take it in hand, the first thing that of course not only by its beauty but also by its symbolism, what we see on the front is the ram, right? The ram which refers I think to its uh, Egyptian its Egyptian um, symbol of, of the god I think Barebjedet, I think it's called uh, that's right, uh, right, yes. right and um that's a kind of representation of osiris in the egyptian in the egyptian mythology so maybe well i'll let you talk um, introduce us a little bit into that book and um now not by the history how you how it started to become a book but more what's in it what's important for you that's in it yeah so initially i noted some unlikely resonances mm -hmm. between certain Egyptian um, elements relating to Osiris, who you mentioned, right. who is, is described as the headless God mm -hmm. in, in some, in some sources, um, the black God, a reference to his, um, uh, Osiris as a kind of embodiment of chthonic forces, Mm -hmm. uh, he's also represented often with black skin. I that's right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, and and th there's this figure in, in Lovecraft's fiction, Yarlathotep, who, who um, is described as the faceless God, the faceless mm -hmm. God. And he's linked uh, explicitly by Lovecraft to the figure of um, the, 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 the black man of the Sabbath, in right. witchcraft lore, the initiator right. of, of the witches. Mm -hmm. um, and I began to just try to think about how these distant elements might all be speaking to one kind of kind of archetypal force, mm -hmm. um, an initiating force that leads us not above in a transcendental way, but mm -hmm. below. Yeah, to to get in touch with the repressed, uh, uh, demonized aspects of the self, mm -hmm. um, and the faceless God, um, I began to see in all of these manifestations um, is a kind of dark image or reflex of the Christ principle. Now, how to explain this without getting into a long kind of theological uh, discussion, but just to put it Try. simply, um, when we think about, David sometimes uses the word logocentric, mm -hmm. um, which is useful. So, in a certain way, we live in a logocentric world. And what I mean by that, the logos is the idea, 
or the word or the concept which mm-hmm. inframes life right mm-hmm. so we we take a rational approach to existence we try to control our environment through science and technology to create an ordered world mm-hmm. a logocentric mm-hmm. world right and that vision of modern uh, rational society is a kind of inheritance of the Christian worldview as Friedrich Nietzsche very clearly shows in, in, in his work. And um, that's also the reason why those forces were demonized and suppressed initially. Yes. Or, uh, right. That's right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So if we think of Christ um, as the logos, the word of God mm-hmm. or the mind of God, The idea is that he is uh, an incarnation of the heavenly father, a reflection of the mind of God Mm. that becomes incarnate in human flesh. Mm. Um, I began to think about the faceless God as a kind of inversion of that principle. Right. Um, So instead of, um, instead of, the fusion of the heavenly father and the natural person, Mm. the logocentric conception. We're talking here about what I call the son of the mother, where the mother is a way of speaking about this underlying numinous realm of Mm. demonic forces Mm. from which the phenomenal world on, on my view Mm-hmm. Uh, is generated mm-hmm. so we kind of take that the language of the heavenly father and we replace that with the chthonic mother mm-hmm. and we mm-hmm. begin to think about what an incarnational theology would look like within this chthonic context mm-hmm. where the faceless god is no, is not is not a kind of um fusion of divine wisdom, transcendental wisdom in human nature, but it is a fusion of human nature and the beast, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. All of those irrational, pre-rational forces that link us to the earth, mm-hmm. to mm-hmm. the mother, to the biological sphere, to the animal world, to the vegetable world. Right. Um, so the faceless God, to my mind, is a kind of necessary correlative to the Christ principle, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, if initiation is not simply about transcend- transcendence and getting beyond the world, but really is beckoning us to get in touch with uh, these repressed aspects of the self. Mm-hmm. So in all these contexts, in the book explores them these threads in great detail, um, Cross-culturally, we seem to come up against this idea of an initiator God, the God of the crossroads, the God who who links the upper and the lower worlds, uh, the God who can show you uh, the dark roots from which human life and consciousness uh, are generated. And of course, from a normative Christian standpoint, we might say that this faceless God is the Antichrist, yeah. is the A-Logos, is the inversion of of the Christ principle. But not in a Nietzschean uh, sense, but in a different sense. Yeah, that would be looking at him from a transcendentalist yes. standpoint. Yeah. Um, and the book certainly um, works through that sort of um, diabolized picture 
right? It uses mm-hmm. some of the imagery of the witch's Sabbath. Mm-hmm. Um, in as much as that encounter with um, the faceless God, that encounter with the Chthonic realms is always marked initially by a kind of terror. Okay. Right? right? Because we're encountering a mystery that is radically other than our human nature. Absolutely. Yeah. But which is also at the same time, somehow the source of our human nature. And that's the paradox at the, at the heart of the faceless God, that he unites us to that mystery. But that different nature is very different from the different nature that Christianity, for example, would, would tell us about, because as you just said, it's heavenly, it comes from above, etc. And here this different nature comes from beyond, from underneath, but not in a negative way, I mean that, but from a just a feeling point of way. Do I, do I get you right there? That's right. It binds mm. us with the mother, by which I mean this, this yeah. whole complex of, yeah. of kind of subterranean numinous energies. But does that mean for you that your thoughts are strict? We, we were mentioning parallel universes before, mm-hmm. but um, it is strictly bound to a terrestrial culture, right? It's not possible to be seen by some, I don't want to talk about extraterrestrials, don't get me wrong, but, but by some other world that could could exist out there in the real existing universe. I mean, a material universe, right? Or is it is it a human interpretation or what is it? Um, so when I talk about the cosmos, I'm not simply talking about this world our world I'm talking okay. about the you know I'm that's where i wanted to get to yeah exactly entirety mm-hmm. this this world is one localized manifestation yeah. of those okay. of those numinous energies mm-hmm. and this orientation can be described as this is a a, a vague term as pagan in some sense mm-hmm. i don't really mm-hmm. like that word because it's, yeah, it's, uh, it's very slippery uh, but like gnosticism and lhb yeah. and all of those terms yes. but it's not nature worship mm. right it's not like something like neo-paganism it's not gaia right? It's not, right the mother is a personification right we, yeah. we need to use personification to yeah. interact with these sure energies sure but the mother is a way of speaking about this vast reservoir of primal energies yeah. from which the ordered universe yes uh issues forth uh, and, the, and and the faceless God is a kind of hypost is a kind of uh, incarnation mm-hmm. of that principle is the mm-hmm. meeting point of that mystery mm-hmm. and the human being mm-hmm. the kind of gateway mm-hmm. uh, if if you will and absolutely it, yeah. yeah 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 you're also using cabalistic uh, methods uh, to 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 go along that that path in the book um can you tell us a bit how and why right yeah i do i do uh that chapter is a little is a little anomalous i suppose Mm -hmm. um well there's a little bit of a nod to kenneth grant's work i think there right he makes a pretty uh substantial use of of the map of the of the tree of life and the 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 so-called night side of the tree of life the cliffhoff and that's right Mm -hmm. um so I do stress there that it is simply a model that we right. might use in order to further map out some of these visionary experiences. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And the use in particular of, of gematria, yeah. uh, I mean, I use, I, I make pretty, I make ample use of it though. Very targeted mm. use of it. You know, mm -hmm. it's not quite as bewildering as you might find in the works mm -hmm. of Grant. Grant. Yes, sure. And I would make the case of, uh, that the gematria is pretty compelling. Mm -hmm. in, in, in some places in the book. Mm -hmm. Like I was quite surprised, taken aback by some mm -hmm. of the ways that the network of ideas came into focus through the use of those methods. Now, the question might be, um, if you're using Kabbalistic methods and Kabbalah comes from a transcendentalist framework, mm -hmm. um, how does this square with the chthonic orientation of the system. Mm -hmm. And I, I guess what I would say is that, um, Gematria is a tool, right? Um, it is a visionary tool. Mm -hmm. Um, and, uh, it is a precisely a, a, a way of kind of blurring the boundaries between reason and unreason mm. or between reason and imagination. Mm -hmm. or a kind of method of delusion where we kind of um, intentionally derange our, our ordinary ways of thinking, mm -hmm. kind of stretch them to yeah. the breaking point. Mm -hmm. And through some kind of synchronicity, and I don't pretend to understand how it works, mm -hmm. um, those methods can, can um, bring into focus uh, various esoteric threads. Right. Um, I don't know, how, you know, I don't know why it works. I, I, I don't, I don't think it works because the universe is necessarily structured according to the tree of life. Yeah. Uh, I don't think I would. Yeah, right? no, I see what you mean. Yeah. Um, but the models can be useful as stepping yeah. stones, which is a very academic approach actually. Yeah. 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 But in a positive way, I mean, right. It's the model, knowing that the model is not the reality, but it's a way of understanding reality. And I suppose it, it, it fits in, in a general way with movements like chaos magic, right? Where as well, of course, where it's, it's not so much a matter of, of, uh, you know, you invest belief temporarily mm -hmm. in a certain mm -hmm. model of reality yeah. as a vehicle for, um, Exactly. Visionary experience. Vehicle, yeah, exactly. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, we could go on for a long time, but our time is all, almost already over. I have one last question I have to ask you because it struck me when I read that phrase, and not in your book, but at, in the presentation of the book on the website of Theon Publishing. It says, this work is indispensable for any serious student of thematic gnosis, of course, yes, and of diabolism. Um, why that word why why do you i say you i probably I, it's 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 accorded with you why do you use that very word um it's a good question uh you know apart from from its value in marketing <laughs> <laughs> which we won't discount completely no there course. is um there is a certain function mm. um in, in the use of, in, in the exploitation of um, fearful images. Okay. Right. As I said, in relation to the lore of the witches Sabbath, mm -hmm. the book makes use of, of demonized stereotypes. Yeah. Um, for one thing, it's our only point of access. 
Mm. We have to work through the demonized stereotypes in order to get at the mm. underlying reality, right? right. To some extent, right. we are bound to our cultural horizons, right? So mm -hmm. if we're engaging in an initiatory um, movement away, we still have to work through that baggage, Mm. Right. So mm. that's to put it in a negative way that we mm. need to do that. We need to take right. account of that. The positive way to put it is, is that fear can also have initiatory function. Certainly. That all of that kind of um, uh, diabolical imagery um, speaks to the initial encounter with this mystery. Mm -hmm. right? As I said, there's a certain fear. There's a certain, uh, both a seductive aspect to it because we're being drawn back to that primal source. Mm -hmm. But there's also something in us that fears extinction. Right. That recognizes that this is us and not us. Mm. So there's a pushing and a pulling. Right. And, and, and a, a strategic use of demonic imagery Um can become a vehicle for, for Gnosis. And this is one of the reasons I find Lovecraft's weird fiction <laughs> useful as well. Yeah, 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 sure, sure. Right, well, um, I can't let you go, Tomas, without asking you, and hopefully the question is yes, and you're going to tell us more about it. Um, um, uh, is, is, the, is the Conquering Twin preparing maybe another book, or is there something in the workings that we are already allowed to know about? Uh, anything that you would like to, to tell us about in that respect? Um, there, there are various possibilities, but okay. there's still... Um, Yeah, nothing, nothing yet fully, fully defined. Um, I've certainly, David and I have certainly chatted about it. Mm -hmm. um, it has to be the right project. You know, I have no interest in kind of pumping out books. Uh, the market for cult books is oversaturated in my view. Mm -hmm. um, so whatever is produced has got to be a genuine expression right. of... Um, of gnosis as I, as I understand it. So I'm not going to force it, but I imagine if once I have enough space, uh, to, to kind of tap into that again, you know, right. go back and forth from a kind of academic set of sure. concerns and pursuits mm -hmm. to more initiatory pursuits, but I'm sure it will happen at some point. Yeah. Okay. So we can be hopeful. Yeah. And thank okay. you for your interest. I appreciate it. <laughs> well, Thomas, thank you so much for being with us here today. It was a great hour and seven minutes uh, in your in your company. And I um, uh, really appreciate it. And I think it was also a great end to this season four of the podcast. And um, I wish you best of luck to all your upcoming work, personal as well as academic, as well as, as a writer, whatever comes next and uh, hope to see you maybe at some point back here and thanks for uh, give, giving the trust to the South Hermes podcast to be with us here today well well thank you again for the invitation and it, it was a it was a true pleasure uh, uh, I, I really appreciated your thoughtful uh, questions and I'm happy we covered so much difficult uh, terrain absolutely so thank you very much for the opportunity Well, thank you and have a good rest of the day. Okay, cheers. Thank you.
bird painted with blue stone. A track or an excerpt from a track from the CD Heliopause by ZDJ, who was offering us his music for today's show. Thank you once again. And thank you also to Thomas Vincente, who was our guest here today. And I think it was a fascinating interview that was really going deep and insightful. And uh, it was also really interesting for me to talk to Thomas Vincente. And now I want to thank you all, you, my audience, who have been with me here, not only today, but throughout this season and throughout now almost 70 shows all together on the Source Hermes podcast. And I must say more and more, I enjoy doing this and I hope we are going to have a really interesting and um, demanding also um, season five that is coming up. And I hope you will be all with me here on this podcast. Season five will be starting on July the 5th. So in two weeks after the release of this episode, not a long break. Of course, I can't wait to release season five. What will season five bring to you? Well, just a few hints um, so that you can know what you will be able to expect. Of course, a weekly show with mostly interviews each Sunday, but also uh, from time to time, every five or six weeks or so, an Ex Libris episode, just as we did in this season four. And there are a few little changes to the Ex Libris episode. It will also have more music. It will have more um, reports on books that I present, and we will try to do most of those presentations of books with the author him or herself so even if it's just short 10 minutes interview with somebody it will always be a little talk with the author to make that presentation maybe more interesting and more also reflecting on the book itself and if i say we will do that i mean me and ursula cherny who has been on the ex libris shows regularly already presenting books that she had selected and she will be even more present and do also those little interviews with my uh, with the authors that those books we present in this shows so that's the new format of ex libris more detail we will get about uh, in the third or fourth episode into the upcoming season because that will be the first ex libris episode in season five and I'm sure you now want to know who will open season five. The season opener will be, ta-da, Frater Acker. Yes, Frater Acker, who has, who is one of the most interesting of the younger generation of magicians and writers in the field. I believe he has that great website, theomagica.com. And he's been already once on the Thoth Hermes podcast, quite a few episodes back now i think it was 2018 or 17 even and he then did his very first interview uh, on a podcast back then and um, i'm very happy that we had him back then and i'm very happy that we have him back because he's about to release a new book um, with scarlet imprint we will hear more about that on the announcement on the website and of course in the season five episode one in two weeks i don't want to give away more 
So the only interviews with Frater Akri will be able to find on the net, the only spoken interviews are on the Thoth Hermes podcasts. Uh, so it was his first then and he has not done any other since then. And I'm really proud and happy to have him back. And I'm sure you're all excited about that because when I see the download figures of his first episode that is still going strong, um, then you can see that he has excited many people around the globe with his work. Okay, so that was the announcement for season five. No, one more thing to say. Expect for season five also new formats. So I think we're finally going to do those roundtable discussions. We are probably also finally going to do some features or special discussions in, uh, about a certain topic. So if you have special interests, uh, topics or some features that you think would be interesting to be done, give me a, give me an email and let me know about it. Or if you even have something that you would like to present yourself, let me know. We want this show to become a little more interactive as well. So that's all that's coming up in season five. Special thanks to all the patrons who support this show. Uh, it's getting, it, it, they are becoming more and more. So it's now really, really about 40 ish already patrons that we have here. Thank you to all and all you others who are not yet patrons of the show, consider of becoming it in. Well, I've said it now. Okay. I think you won't mind. Great. Well, thank you for that great season we shared together and looking forward to the new season that we are again going to share. And for now I'm saying, take care, stay tuned, hear you soon.